Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Pavel Chenko, head of college at Schumacher College. Pavel holds a PhD in English and is the author of many articles, chapters and two books. He is also a passionate endurance and adventure runner. In today's episode, Pavel shares his work at Schumacher College, but also other personal discoveries and aspirations. Together, we explore educational practices that blend theoretical pursuits with immersive community action and the human with the more than human. Can we use ecology as a blueprint for learning models? How to define a scientific method within the framework of regenerative learning? How to take the individual embodied practice and make it resonate with a broader audience? Join us in this conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. We are here today with Pavel Schenkel. Hi, Pavel. Hi, Karina. Pavel, I'm very excited that we finally managed to make it happen. Um, and I, before we dive deeper into the content, I would love if you could tell me and our listeners a little bit about you and uh, your personal story and how did you come to do what you are doing today? Well, well we, we don't have all that much time, I don't think. No. I could go on for hours about my personal story. Um, but you know, maybe just start with who I am and, and what I'm doing now. So. I am the head of Schumacher College and the director of learning at Dartington Trust in South Devon in England. Uh, and I've been here since October of 2019, so just a few months before uh, the global pandemic. Um, it, it seems to be a significant time marker for many people. Uh, and before that, so I've been in higher education leadership probably for about 20 years or so. Uh, so before coming to Schumacher in 2019, I was at a small college in northern Vermont in the U.S. called Sterling College. Uh, which is you know, very small, sort of 100 students, uh, undergraduate institution that very similar to Schumacher focuses on sort of engagement of uh, students with community and with place and with work uh, and sort of a fully embodied experiential learning um, um, organization and community. And so that's largely what drew me from Vermont to uh, the UK uh, is you know, knowing about Schumacher College and then you know, seeing an opportunity to you know, come over and work with the learning community at Schumacher and the broader um, organization at Dartington and, and to, to think about my experience in uh, an institution where really her experience and, you know, what Satish Kumar, the founder of Schumacher College, has come to describe as a head, heart and hands model of learning, uh, which is really focused on, you know, blending the intellectual with the uh, embodied, with the community uh, you know, where learning happens, not just in the classroom, but everywhere. And so that's really what drew me here. And it's been a wonderful experience since since I've been here. Yeah, wonderful. We'll dive deeper into Schumacher College in a, in a little bit. Um, and I want to just apologize to our listeners in advance for maybe uh, being extremely enthusiastic myself about Schumacher College. It's, it's one of the educational spaces that truly inspires me nowadays. Um, but maybe before we go into that, Pavel, um, do you have a 
Do you have an inkling of where did you, this interest originated for you? Where were you or, or this value or this way of looking at education? Well, I mean, I've been in a sort of an academic family, uh, you know, for, you know, since, since I was a child with my father as a professor and my mother working in an academic library. And, you know, sort of that was, you know, the conversation around the dinner, the dining table was always, you know, talking about sort of intellectual challenges and problems and sort of thinking about, well, okay, so that, that's a line that I want to pursue. And I, I sort of followed, um, you know, had a undergraduate degree in, uh, English and a master's degree in uh, English and American literature and then followed a doctoral program, uh, in the same, uh, subject. So I like to say I have three degrees in English, uh, and yet I don't teach in that area at all. Uh, so what I found, though, you know, in my PhD, uh, which I complete, I think, already almost 20 years ago or so, um, was that it really wasn't a literature, you know, project. It wasn't a literature degree at all. Um, and you know, the the panel, you know, as I completed this dissertation, had to defend my work. Said, well, why should we give you a PhD for this? Because this really isn't a literary study as it's meant to be. It's much more an environmental history. It's much more an ec a look at Sort of ecological and cultural integration in a landscape. Um, and the, the book that came out of that was actually, it's titled, um, This Vast Book of Nature. And it looks at a, uh, a region of northern New Hampshire and its sort of transition from a frontier to a tourist economy and, um, you know, the sort of literary environmental history of place. And it struck me that what I was really studying, what my passion really was, you know, through the experience of writing that, which, you know, actually had me out in the landscape going to places that were, you know, written about and exploring the nooks and crannies of a mountain range. And um, it really was about the relationship between the human and the more than human through experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as I got in, as I was looking for uh, a more permanent position and, you know, worked in several different uh, universities and colleges before arriving at Sterling College, I was looking for exactly a place that uh, blended and, and really fully integrated the experience with the intellectual pursuit of, of an academic degree. Um, and, you know, I think it, the two must be wedded together. Uh, there's really, for me, there is no separation between the embodied experience and the engagement in the learning community and some sort of intellectual pursuit. Um, it, it, if, it, if it doesn't have practical application, you know, and you can't experience it fully, um, then, you know, I think we had a brief conversation before we came on about, you know, potentially you're creating an echo chamber where you sort of engage in conversation with just very few people. Uh, where what's absolutely key to me is through that experience and through that engagement with place, with one another, with community, with ideas, you create a tangible uh, you know, relationship that you can build on um, and to build a broader community beyond your studies. Yeah, wonderful. It reminds me of um, I've recently been part of a, of a reading group of uh, Robin Kimmerer's uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in one of the chapters, she was talking about that. She was talking about that the fact that indigenous knowledge is knowledge is science. Mm -hmm. But the way and the, the, the way they go about generating that science is by fully embodying uh, phenomenological aspects in the way you construct theories. And that doesn't make the theory less theoretical. The fact if the path that you came up to that theory is a phenomenological one of and she speaks to um, PhD defense of one of her students that use it as a methodology, building intimacy with grass as, as the grass was was growing. And in that exploring the intimacy as a way to learn. 
And then it, that felt like very strange as a, as a methodology to say, hey, um, is, the, is that a scientific method of understanding this process? Um, well, it depends how one defines scientific method, I think. It, it is yeah. a process by which we understand something, right? Um, I'm thinking of a, of a couple of master's programs that we run at, at Schumacher College, you know, at, I think are great examples. I mean, they all are, uh, but just a couple come to mind. You know, we have one that's called a master's in engaged ecology, uh, which we just ran for the first time, and the students in the, on that course are now working on their dissertation projects. But uh, that course begins with a project where the students actually you know, take flax um, you know, that has been planted in the field from the year before, and it's harvested and fermented and processed, and use that to weave uh, you know, cloth um, and to get into the textile production and the making at the very beginning of the course. Uh, and so really immersing the students at this postgraduate level in the process of making and sort of the tactile nature and experience of doing that as an entry into um, conversations about context, conversations about you know, what that means as far as human, more than human engagement in ecological and social systems uh, and, and all of those sorts of things. But it begins with the making process. Yeah. And, Wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and we do that. You know, there are all sorts of examples um, that we have across the college and across Dartington. And one that I'm you know, quite closely connected with is the Movement Mind and Ecology Masters that um, we are currently running for the first time as well, uh, which I wrote and uh, my colleague, Dr. Rachel Sweeney, is program lead on, that we begin with um, movement practice. And we use the actual sort of physicality of moving mm -hmm. through space and moving through the more than human world and with the more than human world um, as an entry point to conversation about what movement means and then how can movement change our relationship with the broader world and then change conversations and public opinion and so on. Yeah, and, and you speak to these things, Pavel, as if they are so ubiquitous in the in the in the educational academic space or with that ease with that ease that made makes it sound ubiquitous which i know it is not so um i, I want i want us to i want i want you to maybe speak a bit to that like like the college really embodies this notion of transdisciplinarity in education that that combines an a, a quite a quite a good intellectual inquiry or a rigorous intellectual inquiry and merges it with phenomenological approaches so how did that came to be? Like, how is that Schumacher College uh, merges these two elements within this larger context of, of more traditional academic um, landscape? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, it's had a long history, um, you know, not really long compared to other universities. You know, Schumacher is this year celebrating its 30th anniversary. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the book, um, the or the book, Transformative Education, um, that came out earlier this year that Satish Kumar and I co-edited uh, is a great testament to that history and, and looking at the last 30 years and then looking ahead um, to what the next 30 years might bring. Um, and that also needs to be, I think, nested within the now 100-year history of Dartington Estate mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, all of, sort of the context of um, Ex experimental, uh, engaged, experiential learning that really even began in the 1920s with Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst starting, you know, the Dartington experiment and and um, you know various schools that evolved over time throughout Dartington. And I feel like uh, you know a little bit of context over the last couple of years, what we've done in my role as as director of learning at Dartington, what we've done as a as an executive and as a board of trustees and all of the staff has gone through a strategic planning process that has actually reoriented the mission and vision of the entire trust on 
being a center for learning at the intersection of ecology, arts, and social justice, mm. uh, which really, to my mind, is taking not just the heart of what Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst founded in the 1920s, but also the core of the head, heart, and hands model of learning at Schumacher College and making those central to everything that we do at the Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, it's an attempt to, to do, as you described, you know, not many organizations uh, approach learning in this way, unfortunately. Not many higher education providers you know, approach for postgraduate, undergraduate, or unaccredited learning in this way, is we're trying to multiply the effect um, you know, through various partnerships, through you know, bringing that to the core of a, of a larger organization, uh, but also holding to the core of the um, the essence of the community learning uh, and the engaged processes and the the sort of programs as I've described them um, you know, across a, a I think a greater diversity of programs moving forward. Um, but it's all evolved. Um, you know, I think you know there there are a lot of, sort of core principles. Um, of Schumacher College that were there when it began um, in the 1990s that continue to be there today. And I think that the, you know, whether they're influenced by the work of John Dewey or Tagore or mm. uh, the Elmhursts or, you know, Satish Kumar's own books um, you know, that really focus on, you know, approaches to head, heart and hands learning uh, and thinking about, I think most recently, uh, there will be a new book coming out next autumn titled Regenerative Learning. Uh, which is actually the title of my chapter in the in the previous book, the transformative learning. That anyway, that that's a term that we're using quite a bit um, at Schumacher and at Dartington. You know, we've got a course in regenerative economics. We have one in regenerative food farming and enterprise. Uh, and thinking about you know what is regenerative about our learning process, because I think it's not just about um, being integrative and interdisciplinary. It is also about feeding back in. Um, and nourishing the core, nourishing the soul of the learning experience through the student co-creation, through bringing in a variety, you know, all sorts of different partnerships and networks and so on, but really building that up, maintaining that essential core that, that I've described. Mm. And, and what, what kind of um, effect has that had on, on more of your, the environment that you're in, the academic environment? Have you seen uh, some conversations happening? Have you seen some form of movement also within the larger space of of acknowledging this way of learning? I have. I mean, it's easy to to look at a large university, for instance, and say that, well, they're able to create maybe a a small institute or a small college that focuses Mm. on embodied practice and learning. And and then the larger organization doesn't really change. Yeah. Um, You know, and I'm I'm reminded of a talk that I gave at the uh, South by Southwest, uh, you know, education conference a couple of years ago. That, that I've repeated uh, in, in different venues, talking about ecology as a model for learning. Um, and, you know, if you actually look at, you know, we're talking about ecological systems and human systems and socio-ecological relationships, why not actually use those models as the model that we're teaching from? Mm. And for me, that has to work both at the level of the, of the actual classroom and the program and the assignments and the way that students relate, but also the larger governance and the larger way that organizations and institutions um, if uh, um, you know, govern themselves and then hold these learning communities close. Mm. Um, so I, I feel like that's not happening broadly. It's difficult to change the inertia of a large, you know, higher education organization and institution, uh, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware. Uh, but I do see uh, progress in both smaller institutions and in some of the conversations that I have when we uh, continue to build our partnerships with 
you know, other partners that are either in the UK or Europe or elsewhere around the world, um, that there are these sort of bastions of um, regenerative interdisciplinary learning that are really, I think, yearning to be linked up in some ways and to multiply their impact uh, and really to benefit both their local communities and also it's like bringing them together uh, in, in really powerful ways. Yeah. I have um I have a question that I, I think it's very poorly phrased, but I will I will say it anyway. It's a question with two questions inside it. I, I one of them is, you know, the one of the most common critiques of bringing embodied practices at central to the process of learning and 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 let's say knowledge development is in its it, it is its inherent subjective um, nature, mm-hmm. and the fact that how can you make sure that the the thing that embodiment is not it, it, it is a conduit for objective knowledge or science to emerge. So out of this, I have two questions. One is. How do you see, how do you look at this yourself or from an individual perspective? But also, how do you look at the, um, uh, how do you look at embodied practices on a collective level, not on just on an individual level? Mm. I mean, I think that's a really great question. And, um, you know, we could have an interesting debate, I think, about objectivity uh, and what that means in the context of research and experience. Um, because I think we, you know, we, I don't know if we agree or disagree about the, the role of objectivity and subjectivity, um, because clearly what we're talking about, you know, especially with small cohorts, um, you know, and there is a danger uh, that I think we've touched on just a little bit already about having really, really vibrant and amazing experience based um, organizations and communities that are isolated from the rest of the world. Um, and effectively, those act as individuals. Uh, and, you know, might be seen as, oh, well, that's just, you know, an outlier or I mean, what are they, those crazy people at Schumacher doing? Or, you know, what does Dartington think it's doing? It's just sort of this marginalized, you know, organization, which it absolutely isn't. Um, you know, it's really central, I think, and essential to a lot of the debates about sustainability, about, uh, you know, climate crisis and social challenge. Um, and the way that I'd like to think that we might approach, and it's a good discussion to have, um, you know, the idea of, you know, can you take, and how can you take um, the individual experience and embodied practice uh, and make that sort of resonate with a, with a larger public or with a, with a greater diversity of publics um, is a really interesting question for me. Uh, and so when we developed, for example, the Movement Mind Ecology Masters, an essential piece of that program is um, all of the students are, you know, they learn a skill set, uh, they're given the tools, and toward the end of the program where we are now, there is a explicitly outward facing component uh, where part of the assessment is actually to work with partners to deliver, um, you know, experience based engagement with the more than human world to a larger public, to a community forum or venue or you know, some experience um, so that you can then impact a greater number of people. Uh, and through that sort of multiplier effect, uh, hopefully have you know, an impact that then uh, multiplies the effect of, of an individual learning from a program. Um, and I think it's, it's important to recognize at least that the individual experience, you know, is always going to be subjective. Um, and, you know, we bring together a diversity of subjective experiences. Um, and I think that really creates a much richer tapestry, uh, than if we, you know, I don't, I don't know, try, try to unify that experience in some way. Um, because I think it's in that diversity that the interesting conversations and the cross-disciplinarity and the sort of regeneration of learning 
can happen. Uh, and so a way, in a way, it's sort of taking a, taking a chance by creating this complex system and seeing what um, interesting things might emerge during that process uh, that I think really lend themselves to um, aggregating uh, subjective experience. Mm. Wonderful. I have a follow-up question, I think, leading on to that and hooking into a personal project of yours. Uh, well, I don't know if it was personal, but that's how I judged it uh, leading into it. Um, that you uh, you had a climb the climate run. You ran hundreds of miles in the Arctic and the subarctic. That sounds like something that's uh, impressive. I mean, I, I don't think if I would able be able to do so. But um, w what does it take, you think, for maybe this is my interpretation on the challenge itself, and maybe that was not even the the yeah. reason for it. But but it made me wonder. Well, like, what does it take for for one body to co to appeal to a community body? Like, is there is there And it takes me also to, to the Greta Thunberg effect and like these type of activities that to some people seem almost impossible to do unless you have a particular context for it. And that might then generate some form of ripple effect into the community body. But okay. maybe that was not even the intent. So I'm just uh, throwing well, that out there to see. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, and I'd like to think it's a continuing project. It's just on a, a sort of, you know, mm. a little bit of a hiatus at the moment because I, you know, haven't been traveling to those places. But then um, we can talk about the importance of place in, in a minute. When we come back to that. Um, but that project has been really interesting, and um, I'd like to describe actually that you know my background, as, as I've said, is in you know multiple degrees in literature and looking at effectively environmental humanities um, before environmental humanities was its own discipline. Uh, and they're thinking about, well, okay, how I got to a point in my professional career and through my, my personal work, I thought, well, how can I make this matter more? Um, how can I leverage some of the skills and some of the passions that I have in a way that, you know, can be useful for the world? Um, you know, because I, I've been, I came to, you know, endurance running and, and mountain running fairly late in life. Um, you know, I've been hiking ever since I was a child and, um, but not until my late 20s and early 30s did I, you know, start competing in long races and uh, really start to understand what that culture was all about. And I'm recognizing, well, I have a certain skill set. I'm able to, you know, run a reasonably long distance very slowly, which, you know, is not something I would put on a T-shirt. I can run a long distance really slowly, but that's basically my skill set. Um, and so I thought, well, how can I use this in conversations that are, you know, I think really the important ones about changing global narratives about our relationship to the more than human world um, and hopefully have an impact on the climate crisis and you know, other ecological challenges that we face as well as social ones. So the first one of these climate runs that I did was across Iceland um, in 2014, 2015. I can't even remember the year now. Um, and, you know, over three days. Uh, so not, you know, about 150 miles or so, um, so about 50 miles a day, um, you know, which is not an insurmountable distance. Um, but I, I went into this whole project, you know, starting with that, the Iceland run and then moving into others and visiting Svalbard and going into, you know, Arctic Scandinavia and, um, and you know, the Faroe Islands and, and other sorts of places, as well as some, some endurance runs in the United States. Um, I went into this thinking, well, this is going to be about, uh, you know, trying to help people make better choices as far as, you know, the equipment they might use or, um, you know, some decisions they might make around uh, 
exercise and activity and athletics. But what it ended up being more about as I had this experience um, was about the experience itself uh, and how the actual movement through these places. Uh, and for me, you know, it takes a long time to get to it, but to a point of vulnerability and a, and a um, point of openness to the more than human world where the boundaries between sort of self and not self really begin to blur. Um, and, you know, you might say, oh, well, you become one with the world. It's, it's not quite like that. Um, but it is, it's recognizing that you are in fact part of a much broader context and part of a larger world. Um, and for me, there's, there's almost always a very singular moment on one of these longer runs um, that I can point to and say, this was the moment where that happened. Uh, and then reflecting on that, I wanted to be able to package that uh, and bring that back uh, and, you know, talk about it to, to audiences, which I have done, you know, given presentations to, um, you know, uh, school children and, uh, you know, college students and practitioners in the outdoors and, you know, many dozens of um, you know, presentations in, in all sorts of places and contexts. And having those conversations about, well, where does that moment of vulnerability happen for you? And then how can you use that moment of vulnerability to actually build a more resilient relationship with one, yourself, and two, with the more than human world around you? So for me, it ended up being about using these activities. And, you know, it need not be a run of several days across the Arctic, right? It can be a, a walk down your lane or a, an afternoon in your backyard or whatever it is. But how can you use these moments to find those instances of vulnerability where you're actually looking at the relationship between yourself and the world around mm. you. And mm. it's not about you as much. It's not about the world. It's about that relational moment. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I'm trying to get students to that and people to that as much as I can. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful because there's also a form of intellectually inquiry that yeah. gets awakened in the, in those that's moments, right. you know, that, that goes beyond and it's very powerful that goes beyond our ways in which we box knowledge to be uh, acquired in a certain way or another, you know? That's right. Um, what was interesting was that, um, you know, I hadn't explicitly taught courses in philosophy before starting this project. Hmm. Uh, and so I feel like it really was the relationships that I learned about or the vulnerability and the resilience that led me through the activity to to be able to teach the intellectual side of it in you know, environmental philosophy and applications of environmental philosophy and, and courses like that that I developed afterwards. Yeah, but I think it, it does make sense, right? Like the, the best theory is built on a deep understanding and deep observation and contemplation of, uh, of apparently mundane things. But I do think that in, in this act of learning, like there's something so fundamentally um, in, um, important when you just sit in the environment, you emerge yourself into it, you reach a certain depth of knowledge. Yeah that you cannot reach otherwise, no matter how much we try to navigate with our imperfect tools of books and um, other forms of capturing, you know, like I always wonder, you know, this, 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 this ancient philosophers, like they've, they've come to these deep understandings of the world out of practices of contemplations and, and being with the lived environment. Right. That's right. That's um, right. So, I mean, yeah, you, you can't do that in a vacuum. You no. 
in um, in my home country, which is Romania, we have a very wonderful uh, concept called, uh, which is even called transhumanity, and and that was actually a practice. Like um, in Romania, we have a lot of like na- still quite wild nature, yeah. so the 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 people that were guiding the sheep, uh, they had a process that of course worked with the nature cycles. So you take the sheep up the mountain and you take the sheep down the mountain, yeah. and in in that kind of like back and forth. That was very slow, um, almost as slow as the process that you mentioned. There, there was something that happened in the way the, the individual attuned itself to the world and what was happening with nature at that moment of time. Yeah. And out of that came this word uh, transhumanza or transhumanity, mm-hmm. that, that, that you, you managed to go deeper into the folds of your current reality and to sense into your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they brought back... Uh, information that would help them survive, that would help them plant, that would help them decide processes of localized ecologies. But I found it so wonderful now reading back those those practices with the mind that I have right now, realizing that this is exactly what was happening. Absolutely. I mean, it's giving, you know, one thing I think that's that's also key, I mean, experience and engagement embodiment is the fundamental building block of learning. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely believe that. Um, but also there is the need for space for contemplation uh, that you're describing. And it's almost, you know, reflecting on the, the sort of the myth of Sisyphus, what you're describing, going up and down and up and down. And actually in that, you know, mm. descent has been written about many times, like Camus, you wrote about. Yeah, yeah, brother. 100% Thoreau as well. And Thoreau as well. So you've got the opportunity, you know, to contemplate before you, you know, go back to the work. Um, and I think no matter what work you're doing or what physical activity there is, you know, that space of contemplation, particularly in a learning context, is absolutely essential. Now, I want to steer us a little bit on a different kind of path of questioning. So bear with me for another very poorly phrased maybe question. But I, I, reading um, and I, I can't uh, um, I, I, I don't want to assume that I've read everything that you've written. But in reading some of your work, um, I, it seems to me that the human nature is always a point of kind of departure and exploration. Um, and what what does it that mean to be human in the world we live today and and how would you see that as different from the world in which our parents live for example and are there uh, different types maybe of being a human based on something like context or place or moment in time or now how 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 do you look into this <laughs> i mean again these are great questions um you know, the role of place and relationship to place um, is a really interesting one, um, you know, particularly, you know, having these conversations at, at the college, for example, as an illustration that um, a couple of years ago, we had some uh, you know, some challenges with the with the roof of the old postern building, which is kind of the, the core structure or has been historically the core structure of Schumacher College. And the college needed to quickly move. You know, the students need to quickly move into other buildings and, and inhabit those. Um, and, you know, it was, it was quite a dramatic shift uh, and a real challenge for, for folks that were there. And that predates my arrival by a little bit. Um, but what became quite clear after a short while is that it's not the building. Um, you know, it is the spirit. It is the community. It is the engagement. It is the, the sort of intellectual um, relationships and the, the learning community that that makes the college what it is. Um, I mean, place is important. Absolutely. Uh, but it is it, it can manifest itself in multiple places. Um, you know, based on sort of a, hist- a history, a legacy, and an evolution of relationships, right? And I think about that in sort of a, a broader context as well. That you know, 
connection to place, you know, as we teach in our programs, you know, we spend a lot of time outside engaging with, you know, the landscape in and around, um, you know, Dartington, uh, as well as elsewhere in the world. That's essential. But is the connection to a specific place, um, does that matter as much as connection to place and being able to relate to uh, the more than human world on, on multiple levels? Right. So can you carry the relationship that you've built, uh, you know, with the, the um, I don't know, with the with the flowers in your garden? Um, can you take that and as you might move from that place or go somewhere else, use that relational toolkit um, and ability to blur the boundaries between yourself and the more than human world and use that elsewhere um, and sort of engage in that communication with with sort of interspecies collaboration or what have you in, in another context. Um, and for me, I think uh, Tim Timothy Morton writes about this quite a bit that. Um, you know, I, I quoted him just the other day. He says that uh, here is always shot through with there, um, that when you're here, there's always a connection to somewhere else. Um, and to think about that, you know, to, to believe that there isn't a connection, you know, to the global or the regional in the local um, is, is, I think, to our detriment uh, and can really contribute to some of the environmental ecological challenges that we're facing. So I think the the ability to be able to create, develop relationships with the world around you and the world that you're part of um, needs to be portable uh, in, in a lot of ways so that I think you can make these connections um, across different places uh, and across the human and more than human. Yeah. And and we have this ability, like it's it's kind of like written in, in our software, let's call it like that, with quote, quote unquote, yep. um, as, as, as part of this world, right? It's just we need to maybe some find our way back to it and, and, and strengthen and, and practice more being that, you know? I, I wonder, just as a follow-up of your answer, how, how do you work or do you work also with, uh, with the grief and extinction? extinction? Um, of other species and of other parts of our natural world that is happening right now. And I, I can imagine from the perspective of ecology and science, this is no longer something that is, a, um, how do you call that, a possibility, but it's a reality. And, and do you take that into the sensing and the design process? And if yes, how? I think that that's one of the um, challenges that's, that's becoming, you know, as you've described, more and more apparent. Um, you know, as we engage in uh, learning processes and build learning communities and try to change, you know, conversations or guide conversations more broadly. Um, and, you know, even in conversations with students at the college recently, um, you know, it's quite clear that there is a, uh, you know, there's a mental health side um, and a wellness side and a well-being um, component to learning community when you're engaging in uh, some of this really challenging work. Um, I mean, effectively, what we've talked about here is, you know, making ourselves vulnerable to relationships with the more than human world to build resilience in social and in ecological systems and in relationships, right? So if you're engaging in that process of, you know, building vulnerability in the context of a global ecological crisis, um, then it becomes very clear, like your, your skin becomes quite thin and porous um, to a lot of those challenges. Uh, and, you know, we're becoming more and more conscious of in our learning community at the college that, uh, you know, students need support um, and our, our community needs support. And I think if we do, if we're doing that authentic work uh, in our classes, 
which is sort of framed in, in, as an intellectual uh, endeavor, and it absolutely is, but it's still so deeply emotional because it's embodied, because it's experiential, and you're engaging with questions of you know, species extinction and of um, you know, real visible, visceral, deep challenges to our, to our ecology and to our yeah. relationship with the world. Yeah. I think it's a really challenging moment. Yeah, and to a certain extent, if we see ourselves as an indisputable part of that world, also to ourselves. So there, yeah. there is a process of, of, of grief and death that's, that somehow needs to be part of that making sense of the new. I'm, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of Bio Akumolafe and, and his work, uh, in posthumanism, but I'm uh, doing now a course with Bio, um, into the cracks, he calls it. But one of the concepts that he invites us to sit with is, you know, there is no life without death and we shouldn't, we shouldn't escape it. We shouldn't avoid it. Death is safe. Like we need to be able to sit in spaces of destruction and grief and see the potentiality of emergence. That's right. But in order to do that, you need to, we need to know how to sit through those feelings of um, instead of running away from them and denying them, because there's a potentiality of creation there yes. that you are missing. So um, it just it just popped into my mind as you were talking about this. Um, Absolutely. I think it's a really delicate path to walk as well. Um, and particularly if you were talking about younger generations, uh, you know, and if we want to, and, and we do want to more and more at Dartington appeal and engage to, you know, children and families and, you know, how do you have these conversations with, um, with, you know, children really? Um, and, you know, some of those same challenges arise when you're having conversations about vulnerability and about, um, you know, extinction and about or the lamentation process, right? Lamenting about loss uh, with students who are, you know, living on site and fully residential and engaged in community. And it's, you can't escape it. And we don't want that, but we need to frame it and carefully hold the community as we explore these issues. Oh, I'd love to 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 do an episode just on this topic with you. Um, but I'm very aware of the time and the fact that we don't have much more time left, unfortunately. I, I would like to ask you one last question, Pavel. What how do you see your path moving forward? Are there any new topics, exciting topics that are bubbling in your mind for yourself that you can share? Well, I mean, there's always lots of projects, aren't there? And I think that's what that's what keeps us going and keeps us engaged in, in the work that we do. Um, I mean, right now, you know, really helping um, Schumacher and Darlington evolve, um, you know, into being, you know, uh, you know, a vibrant learning community, as I said, at the intersection of these three areas, um, arts, ecology and social justice. Uh, and more and more, you know, what's really excites me are the connections and are the relationships and sort of the, the, the processes, processes of partnership, um, whether we're working with um, your organizations that are right in Dartington and, and work with us already, whether these are global partners, whether these are, you know, even conversations like this one, just, you know, building relationships that can then regenerate and feed back into um, uh, building that learning community. Those are really exciting to me. Uh, and so I've been having many conversations and working with other networks and uh, building networks of networks and, you know, all sorts of really fantastic, um, uh, sort of bringing together of people with different, from different disciplines and, and sort of different professions. And it's always surprising what comes out of those. And that's really exciting. Thank you, Pavel, for this, uh, for the taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Corinna. It's been a real pleasure. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.